The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the war zone, the ongoing development at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and we analyse Vladimir Putin's snub of the funeral of Mikhail Gorbachev. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 2nd of September, day 191. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, foreign correspondent, James Kilmer, and Hamish de Breton-Gordon, former commander of the UK and NATO CBRN forces. That's chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, good afternoon, everyone. As we've discussed throughout this week, there's much we don't know about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But Western analysts who are monitoring the conflict say that Ukraine is achieving its tactical objectives of improving their long-term positions on the southern front line. Now, this is according to US intelligence Russia apparently is suffering severe manpower shortages and is being forced to bring back wounded soldiers to plug the gaps in its defences. Other independent military analysts have said, and I quote, we still maintain that Ukrainian activity is fulfilling tactical goals of improving, excuse me, improving Ukrainian positions rather than operational objectives of pushing Russians over the Dnipro River. However, the situation is fluid. If the Russian defence crumbles, then tactical successes can translate into an operational victory. We've also heard from Ukraine's Southern Operational Command yesterday, which has claimed that its forces have killed 201 Russian soldiers and destroyed 12 T-72 tanks, 18 armoured vehicles and six ammunition depots over the past 24 hours of fighting. Now, of course, all figures should be taken with a pinch of salt. But nonetheless, uh, I think it's telling that Ukraine is willing to willing to publish certain statistics uh, from the past 24, 48 hours. And even pro-Russian sources are claiming that the invasion force uh, that they've obviously launched um, back in February is under attack from fresh Ukrainian forces equipped with NATO weapons rather than the, quote, tattered formations made up of poorly trained reservists that they've faced in the past. So that's the more optimistic, positive news that we're hearing from the front line. There is a slight other side to this, which is that there's mounting evidence that this is a real challenge for the Ukrainian forces. Whilst they're taking this Russian-held territory, it's coming at a a heavy cost. Um, Dom spoke yesterday about certain um, soldiers that have been cited, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal. And they talk about how the Russians are throwing everything at them. And we have a lot of equipment, but few men. Um, so this perhaps paints a slightly less rosy picture than, than some of the the, uh, the reports that we've been getting in. Of course, both sides are also claiming certain battlefield successes. 
despite the fact that details are indeed very scarce. Um, uh, but from another perhaps way of thinking about this, which might reframe the perceivingly slow advances made thus far is Ukraine are fighting a different kind of offensive than the Russians in those early months of the war. The Russians, to put it bluntly, were brutal. Um, One might even say sadistic in not thinking about what they're firing upon. Whereas the Ukrainians are saying that they are being much more careful. Indeed, one of the advisors to President Zelensky has said it is a very slow process because we value people. So clearly drawing a line in the difference between them and the way that the Russians can treat their soldiers and their targets. So that's the updates on the front line in the past 24 hours. I know that regular listeners will, will want to hear this from Don, but hopefully that does a, a good job of condensing it all. Thanks, Francis. That was exactly what we needed and uh, extremely comprehensive. Uh, of course, the big news today is the is the continuing um, updates that we're getting from the Zafirisia nuclear power plant. We will come to that in a minute, I think, with Hamish. But first, Francis, there's just a couple of other things I think to mention. Um, there's some updates from the uh, from on, on global food prices, and there's some more uh, updates on the on the energy situation in Europe. Yes, well, I'll start with food first. Obviously, we've spoken on the podcast at length about the Ukrainian grain shipments and their significance in the conflict thus far. Indeed, one could argue that it gave Russia considerable leverage in terms of bringing them back to the international community, at least back at the negotiating table. But there are uh, positive signs, at least from the perspective of the global food economy, that this has had an impact on food prices. Indeed, global food prices are falling thanks to the Ukrainian grain shipments. They've fallen for the fifth consecutive months, believed partly due to this resumption of exports from Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Uh, There's been a moderate decline in prices of around 1.9% in August, and it's now fallen to 1.4%, driven by a 5.1% drop in international wheat prices. Now, you could say that in contrast to everything else, this this is not really a big story, but I think it is for the reasons that I've just laid out. But also, of course, this has a huge significance in just in terms of the cost of living prices to come, not only in Europe, but particularly in Africa. And uh, the real threat posed by famines and the loss of those crucial Ukrainian grain shipments. So I think that's quite significant. And just on the energy front, uh, of course, this has been a subject that's been very close to me in the last few weeks. I've been really focused on this. And there's been some interesting remarks in the past 24 hours by the EU chief on these matters who said that there needs to be a price cap on Russian pipeline gas. Now, this was something that was actually put forward as a suggestion by uh, several thinkers, I think, in the United States. And indeed, I believe the United States is working on, on, on this as an approach to trying to solve the problem of Russia benefiting from increased prices um, due to demand of its energy and gas. So what they're obviously trying to do, the international community, is work a way in which they agree a set amount of prices that they're willing to pay so that normal market forces, which would lead to increased 
prices going to uh, or increased money going to Russia for this uh, for these supplies, um, it does not go to them. Um, indeed, that they would only be willing to to pay a certain amount. And indeed, they've he said, I firmly believe that now is the time for a price cap on Russian pipeline gas to Europe. And indeed, this has also been supported by the European Commission chief Ursula von der Leyen as well. So, and of course, all of this plays in as well to the broader financial picture. Indeed, it's, I was reading a report this morning that saying Russian banks have lost a combined 1.5 trillion rubles in the first half of the year as the Western sanctions have shut the country out of large parts of the global financial system. And indeed, whilst I think in some ways the Russian economy has appeared more robust than uh, some expected, the reality is, of course, that they've managed to contain the damage by shutting themselves off and doing certain dark arts um, in, in, in terms of making their economy appear stronger than it is. But for all of the talk, the reasons talked about in that Yale paper that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, there are deep and reliable reasons to think why and believe that the Russian economy is really, really suffering and indeed will not be able to sustain this for more than a year or two. But I'll, I'll pause there. Well, thank you, Francis. As, as I said, that was very comprehensive and I think just what we needed going into the weekend. Can we turn to the Zafarisha nuclear power plant? Uh, we've seen a lot of activity around this plant during this week, including the visit of Rafael Grossi, the chief of the IAEA. Uh, Hamish Gibraltar, Gordon, you've been following this story all week and talking to some people in the know. What's the latest that you're hearing on this? Well, I think, um, you know, looking at Zaporizhia, uh, as you said yesterday, we got the inspectors in there for the first time. I think on the face of it, th- this is a good thing. You know, there has not been any uh, attack on, on the power station while the inspectors have been there. And we now learn that they are going to, at least two people are going to stay there for the foreseeable future, which again must be a big thing. Um, as I wrote in the Telegraph early this week, the sort of nuclear conundrum the brinkmanship that is associated with it is something the Russians are are absolutely playing now for a whole host of reasons um, that you've already discussed on the pod with things happening elsewhere. Um, And it's interesting to note that uh, Dmitry Peshkov, the Kremlin spokesman this morning, hailing what a good thing this is and uh, how positive it is that the inspectors are in there so they can see exactly uh, what, what is going on um, and and playing it in that respect. I think the other thing to consider, there are no Western journalists um, with the inspectors. It's just the Russian ones. So we are, are getting slightly gilded story. The Ukrainian um, uh, Atomic Energy Commission are also saying that they believe that uh, a lot of the workers on the site are under duress. But, um, you know, I have confidence in Mr. Grossi. I think he's come across you know, a very clear way and um, I'm sure he will get to the bottom of things. Uh, we've already seen some photographs and some video coming out of the Russian press of, of missiles um, lying on the ground around the place. You know, I'm right, the only thing I'm surprised about, we haven't seen ones we sort of made in in the US in poor Russian written on them. We have seen some military vehicles. Um, and interesting to me, these some of these vehicles are from their CBRN forces, their chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear forces. Um, and I think we, we discussed last week General Vasiliev, who was sort of my equivalent when I was still in the British Army, my equivalent in the Russian Army as head of 
CBRN was commanding the place. Whether whether this is because they've learned the lessons from when they went into Chernobyl at the beginning of the war and apparently took a lot of casualties from radiation, or whether this is something more nefarious, um, it's very difficult to say at this stage. Uh, the four, the inspectors are back again today. Uh, we understand they've only seen a bit of the uh, place. Uh, what they will be looking for is to check that the safety mechanisms are in place, most especially the cooling system to keep the uh, nuclear fuel in the reactors cool and also to keep the spent fuel um, outside is kept cool as well. We we get to nuclear problems once fuels um, start overheating and catching fire. So that is critical. We also need to know what the maintenance schedules have been for the last six months, you know, whether there you know, are any spare parts that are needed. Uh, and um, we, we keep hearing about the power going off and on. So I think it, it is a positive start. I'm rather concerned as we're all so focused on Zaporizhia, you know, what else um, might be going on. Uh, but hopefully this is not a short-term thing and uh, the inspection will carry on and ideally we'll create a demilitarized zone around the place. So, sorry, a bit of a ramble to get start off with to make sure that I, I got the key points in before perhaps I'm cut off. Over. No, not at all. That was that was fascinating. Thank you, Hamish. Just a, a couple of questions from me. Just, just going back to, I mean, we, I'm just reading the report now in, in the Telegraph. Um, we write that the the physical uh, sorry the UN inspectors have said that the physical integrity of the occupied power plant had been violated quote violated several times end quote could you just give us a sense of what what they meant by that um, and then you also mentioned uh, what the Russians might have learnt um, at uh, their experience occupying uh, uh, um, Chernobyl earlier in the war could you refresh our memory what what happened there why was it so dangerous well I think firstly taking Chernobyl you might remember in the early days of the war. Uh, Chernobyl to the north of um, Kiev was on the advanced south. And uh, and also the, the Russians knew that with a huge exclusion, exclusion zone around Chernobyl, it was probably, uh, there were probably few Ukrainian troops there. So I think their thought was, right, we'll crash through this area. We won't be held up uh, and we can go straight into Kiev. What they, had, what they then happened is that they started doing a lot of uh, digging, digging trenches as soldiers do, but the ground is heavily contaminated. There are reports, and I, I don't think these have been verified, reports up to 150 Russian soldiers died uh, from radiation poisoning uh, and a whole lot others were injured. And I think that was that was pretty stark. They obviously sent troops in there who did not understand about this sort of stuff, didn't have radiation detectors um, and and didn't have the expertise, but they just saw this as an easy way into Kiev, uh, and absolutely turned out not to be the case. We know that they took away a lot of radioactive uh, fuel and samples, and we just don't know where, where that is. And I'm sure if those people weren't pro- properly protected, then, then they would be in trouble. Uh, obviously, with what's happened and where the war has gone, Chernobyl is much less of a concern than it was. But when we look down south to, to Zaporizhia. And as you said, uh, Grossi said yesterday that the integrity of the site had been uh, damaged. 
I think what, what we're talking about here is we know that various missiles and artillery shells have landed in and around the site. And there was a, uh, a satellite picture in the Telegraph a couple of days ago showing a hole in the roof of one of the reactor buildings. So I'm sure that is what he's referring to. I expect his people have not had a chance yet to get inside those buildings that have been damaged to see what damage ha has been caused. And of course, you know, at the moment, we only have two reactors going. I think, I think the one that was shut down yesterday is back on again. That's two out of four, out of six, rather, apologies. And of course, you know, a nuclear reactor is not just something you can turn on and off like a switch. Um, you know, they have to be very carefully maintained. They have a whole raft of standing operating procedures that must be followed for, for their safe use. Now, these reactors are well-built, relatively modern, have good safety features. And, you know, in normal times, 99.9% uh, .9 safe. However, when you throw in all the variables, and I think it was very interesting that Grossi's predecessor at the International Atomic Agency uh, was, I, I think he was on the Today programme talking about this, saying, of course, what what creates a disaster is a is a number of things going wrong and maybe even a number of unlikely things. But the same in life, you know, a, a, a sort of sequence of events that come together to create a disaster. And I think that is what he's referring to. There are so many unknowns at the moment and Zaporizhia is operating, you know, way outside the um, the, 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 the mechanisms and the design that it was done for. That is why we are concerned of the possibility of, of a nuclear accident. And going back to, again, the, the stuff we were talking about last week and what I've been writing about is it is very much in the Russians' sort of playbook and it's very much their advantage to make as much as they can uh, of Zaporizhia and the whole nuclear conundrum. Um, you know, in effect, it is what is keeping Western forces, you know, out of Ukraine. And I suppose just to, just to sort of go off piece slightly, um, going back to the Second World War, you know, Adolf Hitler had a massive chemical weapons program, which would have probably overwhelmed um, the Allies. But Adolf Hitler didn't use his massive chemical weapons program because he thought we had the bomb, we had the atomic bomb. And in a bizarre sort of way, um, you know, Putin is using this nuclear ace card, be it Zaporizhia or be it the threat of tactical nuclear weapons, which I think Dom wrote about yesterday or the day before. And that is why it's got us all on tender hooks at the moment. Just, um, well, thank, thank you very much for that, Hamish. Just one more question from me. You've obviously been on this podcast a few times now to talk about the situation in Zaporizhia and give us background, your thoughts. Um, Am I? You sound a little more positive um, about the future um, after after this week than I think I've heard you before. Is that fair? Or I mean, how do you think? Are, are we are we in a better position than we were the last time you came on? Well, I I think on the face of it, we are absolutely. We now have international inspectors on the ground in Zaporizhia. Um, we have not seen the Russians shelling them. Um, yeah, I, I, I really don't get get the Russian claim that uh, the Ukrainian government are shelling Zaporizhia, that, that would be even more bonkers than what's happening at the moment. So I think with the inspectors there, 
and and with the work, you know, everybody covering it, Alabite, not from in Zaporizhia itself. Uh, I think, and looking at it so forensically, you know, if anything did happen to those inspectors, um, they are under the, you know, un, under the umbrella of the Russians at the moment. It would be entirely the Russian fault. So in that guise, and from a purely technical perspective, to have experts in there to to make sure that all that the safety measures are in place and being followed give, gives me you know make, makes make, makes me feel a little bit more positive however i still hold on to the fact that um you know putin's brinkmanship and the use of the nuclear conundrum is something that that we're probably going to stay with us but if we can reduce the threat from an accident at zaporizhia that at least takes one part of the conundrum out of it. So while the inspectors are still there, yeah, I remain more positive than I have been for a few weeks. Thanks very much, Hamish. I think Francis just has one question for you, and then we'll go to James. Yes. Hi, Hamish. Um, I just wanted to talk about an article that you wrote for us, uh, I think it was earlier this week or, or the end of last week, about, to your point, about the nuclear trump card that, that Putin holds. And you wrote uh, an, an, arg- an article for us talking about what we should be doing and what we could be doing more of uh, to weaken his hand on that. And I just wondered if you could summarise for, for listeners what you argued in, in the second half of that article with regards to what, what more the international community can be doing to neutralise that, that nuclear threat. Well, I think it's, it's sort of nuclear conundrum, as I said. I think to begin with... Um, uh, neutralizing the Zaporizhia, the accident threat, the way that I sort of described that Putin has turned this into a sort of improvised nuclear device. Um, and I personally, you know, a week ago, didn't think the inspectors would be there. Now that they are, I think that that is, um, you know, a very positive step forward. On, on the on the nuclear side itself, um, you know, I, I am not entirely sure what the reaction of NATO is going to be for various escalations on the nuclear side. And I, you know, I I have actually got a letter in the Telegraph tomorrow about the red button and the new PM coming in. So we talk and and Dom wrote very well about the tactical nuclear weapons um, and the potential. And, you know, without going into all the detail, but you know, Soviet doctrine does allow local commanders to use tactical nuclear weapons to stave off sort of battlefield defeat. Um, and, you know, in some areas, we are, we're not in that, we're not there, but we're going to that place. And I think, you know, the Western NATO should articulate more clearly, uh, maybe I'm not hearing it uh, as loudly as I should, but more clearly what the NATO reaction would be to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, because, you know, these, we, we call, call them small nuclear weapons. That's a complete anathema. These are still, you know, the smallest one is three kilotons, which, um, you know, is a massive explosion, similar to the, the Beirut explosion that people remember um, 18 months ago and the devastation that caused, but add on top radiation as well. And you've got a, a significant problem that could cover many hundreds of kilometers. So I would like to see us be much more, clear on that um maybe for my own mind maybe i i'm i'm missing something here on the strategic side you know i i i really i i do not although putin has threatened this i think it's part of 
you know, his brinkmanship. And when you, you know, when you don't really care and you're happy to throw these things around, it, it's it's jolly easy, I think. But you know, for the uh, for for NATO and, and the West. Who, who is opposing the Russians and supporting the Ukrainians. I think we need to make this, you know, absolutely clear. Because um, as I said in my piece, you know, it is the nuclear conundrum that is really reining us all back. And I think the Ukraine, U- Ukraine military would be uh, advancing far more rapidly and we would be giving them far more support if there wasn't the nuclear issue hanging over. So probably not a very good answer to your question, but I think we need to make it absolutely clear what we, NATO, are going to do if tactical nuclear weapons are used um, or and or if there is a deliberate attempt to um, you know, blow up or set on fire Zaporizhia or one of the... Uh, I say one of the other nuclear power stations. The other nuclear power stations are in the West and way away from Russian forces at the moment. Um, but again, you know, the potential for the Russians to fire missiles at them uh, is still there. So that's, that's uh, I think, my main argument. We just make, need to make it absolutely clear to Putin and to his cronies that, um, you know, that, that would be a step that goes over a red line. And... You know, our, our red line usage in the past has not been great. Um, and we've just gone past the anniversary of the red line in Syria when uh, we didn't act, when uh, Assad used massive amounts of nerve agent uh, in Damascus back in August uh, 2013. So that that is my key thing. Does, does that answer the, the question in any way? Over. Very much so. Thank you. And I just would say I completely agree with you that, that there's much more that the international community can be doing, I think, to to mark out more clearly that red line, but also bringing in as well perhaps certain powers around the world that have not been perhaps quite as supportive of the Western view on the war of Ukraine uh, than 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 others, not least China, to show that it's that that it's really not in anyone's interests for these weapons to suddenly become an accepted part of, of, of one's arsenal. And indeed, I think China could, could if, if, if enough efforts will be, were made, could, could be persuaded to, to say some sort of cryptic remark, either publicly or behind closed doors, that if these weapons are used, then all and any support that China could have offered Russia would be voided overnight. And I think that if the international community were really able to come together and make that very, very clear, then, as you say, Putin and his cronies would know that that to use those weapons would be to completely destroy any support any financial credibility of the Russian state and thus void the possibility of those weapons even being considered. Yeah, sorry, France, just to pick that up. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think China could pe- pe- play the Trump card here. You know, at the end of the day, the, the US and the EU are far more valuable by many, many trillions of dollars to the Chinese economy. And, you know, the Chinese band of, brand of communism is based on on the economy. And if we, uh, I think, I, as I put, you know, if we, if we squeeze the, the Chinese, I expect the Chinese hand around the Russian neck would tighten. And uh, that would probably be a key way to, uh, again, reduce the nuclear threat and, uh, and resolve the nuclear conundrum. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Hamish Breton Gordon and Francis, for your thoughts there. Hugely appreciated. Um, can we move to James Kilner? Thank you very much, James, for staying with us. Um, your beat is the Central Asian states. Um, what 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 have been the big stories of the week there? I mean, I'm, I think we're particularly interested in the reaction to the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. I think that shows us a little bit about how um, these places and these peoples think about their history. So it's been relatively quiet in Central Asia and the South Caucasus over the last week for general news and for news linked to Ukraine and the war there. Um, the Obviously the death of Gorbachev, which I've been reporting on for the Telegraph, and I'm, I'm going to report on his funeral tomorrow in Moscow, has been the, the one of the big stories this week from the former Soviet Union. And the reaction or lack of reaction from Central Asian governments and people living in Central Asia, uh, as well as in the South Caucasus, says a lot for how they regard uh, Gorbachev, who's hailed as a hero in the West. And I think it's really important. I don't know where you've been, how far you've got through your discussions with Gorbachev this week on this podcast, but it's really important for the West to remember that although he is regarded very much as a as a hero uh, in London and, and Washington, and he was given the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990 for helping uh, bring down the the Iron Curtain in 1989 and, and, and the Cold War a year later. Um, he is hated, reviled in, in most areas of uh, the former, most countries, the former Soviet Union, and also in Russia itself. In, um, uh, and by any yardstick, uh, you, you know, you have to think that People in Kazakhstan and Georgia, they, they have a point. Um, 96, so this is December 1986. So I think Gorbachev came to power in April 85, sometime around then. So within 18 months or 19 months of his uh, ascendancy to uh, head Soviet Union, he had his soldiers had killed 200, around 200 protesters in Almaty, the, the then capital of the Kazakh uh, Socialist Republic, uh, peaceful demonstrators, and that was in 1986. 1989, they cracked down uh, on Georgians in Tbilisi. 1990, they did the same in Riga uh, to Latvians, and 1991 to Lithuanians in Vilnius. So he really does have a very patchy, uh, you could say, human rights record in, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, which people remember more starkly than the abstract notion, much more abstract notion in, in their eyes of the end of the Cold War. And so the message and the, the story from Central Asia and South Caucasus this week had really been, been about silence regarding um, Gorbachev's death. And James, what do you make of what we think we've seen this week with Putin's uh, snubbing of, of Gorbachev and his legacy he only went for uh, i think it was 30 seconds just to see his open casket he's not being granted a state funeral and um, what do you make of that what, what does that tell us about putin and the russia he's created yeah that, i mean that that was a remarkable remarkable scene yesterday in in, in the in the hospital in central moscow um where only three or four hours earlier uh an oil executive who had whose company had been critical of the war and Moscow had fallen from a fifth floor window and, and died. So in in the same hospital, um, Gorbachev's casket, open casket in the in the in the Russian manner, um, was was in the middle of this sort of 
spare room and Putin walked in carrying a, a bunch of coronations, laid laid it down on the, on the side of Gorbachev's casket, bowed his head momentarily, looked at uh, Gorbachev's portrait, crossed himself and walked out. And as you say, literally lasted 30 seconds. And this is um, this was his his respect amounted to 30 seconds to um, this Nobel Peace Prize, former Soviet leader. It's remarkable. Um, I think Putin is trying to channel how most Russians regard Gorbachev. As, as I said, they're, they're deeply sceptical of his, his legacy and his record as, the, uh, as one of the uh, you know, people who ended the Cold War. In, in their eyes, they, he undermined the Soviet Union uh, which collapsed in 1991 and ruined all their lives, ruined their economy. It was a huge humiliation and uh, was very confusing and, and allowed the oligarchs to grab power, etc. Uh, so he was channeling that. In, in the middle of a war where he where Putin's resources and propaganda machine is incredibly re- incredibly stretched, he is trying to get on the on the right way on the same wavelength as as many Russians, many ordinary Russians, and he's doing it. He, he, you know, he, he's he's very savvy with his propaganda, and he is, I think, tapping into what, how how most Russians would regard Gorbachev. You also have to remember that there's personal animosity, or maybe animosity is too strong. Where there's personal, there's personal mistrust between the two men. Um, Putin was very much uh, was very you know was terribly upset about the end of uh, the Soviet Union when he was a KGB agent and he got caught um, caught sort of um, watching it live in, in Dresden in 1989 when when East Germany um, collapsed as a, as a Soviet um, satellite state and he was always said that this was the greatest catastrophe um, you know for, for for him and he's essentially spent his life trying to rebuild it and that's what we've seen is going on in Ukraine that's an extension of of, of, of that um, so he blames Gorbachev for this terrible event in his in his eyes um, even though Gorbachev as as I've just explained was was a, was a sort of typical Russian leader hard man as well Soviet hard man very happy to to use force to cross demonstrators time and again. He supported the annexation of Crimea in 2014. He supported Putin's invasion of uh, Georgia in 2008. He was silent on on the on the you know th- this year's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I've seen comments from his long long-standing translator uh, who spoke to him this year, who who said that Gorbachev was upset about it, but he never went on public record to say this. So. The two men have, uh, you know, they share uh, very much share some instincts, and I think they fall they fall away by Gorbachev's natural charm and instinct to cozy up to some of the Western leaders, Thatcher and Reagan, obviously par- uh, paramount, um, and and Putin's much more isolationist uh, instincts. Well, thank you very much for that, James. I've just got one question for you when we're thinking about Putin's snub and the lack of state funeral do you think um was was this something that was expected to happen did people expect this to be refused uh, or, or did it come as a surprise to 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 people like you watching Russia I th- I, th- I think um I think that's a, I think it's a great question I think I, I, I was in Russia in 2000 I was in Moscow working for Reuters in 2007 when Yeltsin died Boris Yeltsin was the first post uh Soviet Russian leader 
um, between 1991 and, and uh, resigning on the end of 1999 um, and promoting Putin into power famously um, when he died and he was a staggering alcoholic and, and uh, slightly wild, wild, wild character. When he died in 2007, Putin rushed to uh, impose a day of national mourning and a state funeral, etc. And I, I, I would have expected a much grander, more state orientated affair if, Russia hadn't been at war in Ukraine. If it was peacetime and um, the the strains of the war wasn't having a destabilizing effect on on Russia, which I think it is, uh, then I think Putin would probably have been more relaxed about making more of a thing of, of uh, Gorbachev's death. I do think that uh, Gorbachev's very poor reputation in Russia and the former Soviet Union would have prevented him from going maybe getting the whole hog and giving him a full state funeral, etc. But he would have gone some way there. And the last point on this, Boris Yeltsin's reputation wasn't even particularly, isn't even particularly strong in Russia and, the, and, and, and beyond as well. Um, and yet he got the full, full works. We've talked a lot about Gorbachev this this week, but I thought I think James, you've really added quite a lot to our understanding. So thank you so much for that, uh, Francis. Do you have any comment on that before we move to our final thoughts? I'll just pick up on one thing that James was talking about there, which is the remarks of Gorbachev's former translator and aide for thirty seven years. And I've read the same report that that James has, and it really is fascinating for the reasons that James was talking about. Not only in uh, talking about Ukraine and how supposedly shocked and bewildered Gorbachev was by what happened. Although, to, of course, to James's point, uh, he didn't put, go on record to condemn the invasion, if indeed that was the cause of his sort of shock. And indeed, as we, we talked about at length this week on Ukraine, he was in favour of the annexation of Crimea. And of course, there's he, he was barred from entering the country for five years as a consequence. But I'll quote directly from uh, Gorbachev's translator, because I think it's it's quite uh, revealing, really. He says, it's not just the special military operation that started on February 24th, but the entire evolution of relations between Russia and Ukraine over the past years that was really, really a big blow to him. It really crushed him emotionally and psychologically. It was very obvious with our conversations with him that he was shocked and bewildered by what was happening for all kinds of reasons. He believed not just in the closeness of the Russian and Ukrainian people. He believed that those two nations were intermingled. So if that is, is it, as would appear, the insight into what was going on in Gorbachev's mind as a consequence of the invasion, I think, again, it does mark a profound difference in mentality, at least, between Putin and Gorbachev. There's more of, I think, a, a subtlety and an understanding of of the complexities uh, of 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 Russia and Ukraine's relationship in recent years. Uh, more of a sympathy, I think it's fair to say, to uh, to to the perhaps the the Ukrainian uh, independence and, and cause. It seems like he's pretty shocked at, at the brutal manner of the of the invasion and feared the consequences of that. So. Indeed, it is, I think, revealing of the, the, the big differences between the two men. 
And as I said on the podcast earlier this week, Gorbachev was far from a perfect leader for all of the reasons that James has has, has highlighted and is right to do so. Um, but there was, I think, a certain warmth and complexity and humanity to Gorbachev, which we'll need to see again in a future Russian leader if this new thaw that we want to see is to take place in the relations between Russia and the West. Well, thank you very much, Francis Hamish and James, for your thoughts and expertise today. Can I just come to each of you just for a quick final thought? Going into the weekend, obviously, we we go live every weekday. So what should our uh, listeners be thinking on and paying attention to over the next few days? Shall I start? Um, Very quickly, I think uh, on on my patch, like like I said, I'm covering the Gorbachev funeral tomorrow, and I think it's going to be very interesting. So so the format is... um, uh, he, he's lying in sort of in, in a big room, the hall, hall of columns in, in central Moscow, and uh, family members will be there. And I think it'll be open to the public. Anyone's allowed to wander around and pay their respects. And then he'll get buried next to his wife at a cemetery in Moscow um, later on. It'd be very, very interesting to see how many people turn up um, for this funeral and whether it attracts um, members of the public or not. I think that's definitely something to work, uh, look out for. Maybe maybe Putin's propaganda signalling will have scared people away. Tanya, uh, shall I come in next? Um, I, I think for me, there are just two things uh, that, that are going to happen uh, and of importance over the next couple of days. Obviously, Zaporizhia. Um, if the Russians are serious about securing Zaporizhia and making it safe, then the demilitarised zone, which uh, the IEAA have asked for and others of us have called for, the Russians should allow that. Uh, the second thing is, of course, we're going to have a new prime minister on Monday. If it is Liz Truss, she used the single exclamative uh, noun, yes, when asked whether she'd press the red button. I, with the points I made earlier, I would like to uh, hear her reaffirm that any use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine uh, or uh, any use of nuclear facilities like Zaporizhia as weapons would cross a red line. And and I suppose I said two, three, I would like to see the Chinese get involved economically and lean on the Russians uh, to take the nuclear conundrum out of this um, conflict. Over. And um, I, I would just end by reflecting on a tweet that was sent to me by a listener called Tammy Evans. So thank you very much for that, Tammy. Uh, citing another gentleman called Thomas Jorgensen. And it's just a reflective piece on how the EU should be offering to take care potentially of Russian prisoners of war, more making it more clear the benefits of of leaving the front lines and providing them with good food, free internet, and emphasising that there's no real point in harming Russian soldiers that surrender. It's good for Ukraine and good for for the bringing about the end of the war if if it's easier for, for Russians to feel like, actually, I don't want to be fighting this and there are many advantages for me if I surrender. It just got me thinking about the manner in which the First World War ended, which, of course, there's many elements to why that war ended. But one of the key ones is that as the war dragged on, the Allied powers made it much clearer to German soldiers who, of course, by the end of the war in 1918, were uh, had, had been fighting for a very, very long time indeed, um, 
that if you surrendered, you would not only be treated well, but you'd be treated considerably better than your current experiences on the front. And that was a huge shift because earlier on in the war, there were all sorts of scare stories about what would happen if you entered French captivity, what would happen if you entered British captivity. Many of them weren't true. They were German propaganda. But nonetheless, the, as the war went on, the, there was a shift. Things changed and the Germans eventually saw that actually if they did surrender, that they would be treated better. And that had a huge impact that when things really got bad in 1918 and in the successive Allied offensive towards the end of the war, many just thought, I've had enough. And I think that there will be many, many Russian soldiers on the front line in the weeks ahead who'll be thinking, I've had enough of this. I was missold what this war was about. It's, it's much more challenging than I ever thought I'm suffering here. And the EU, if it makes it clear what it will offer, or at least Ukraine or certain other countries, what it will offer to those who surrender that will give them a better life than they would have otherwise in Russia, then I think that may well persuade many to, to turn. So um, just a reflective point I thought it would be interesting to raise there at the end. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.